people in the first, this is a repeat from the first one this morning, and we have 100 people and 70 plus of you here right now. That is wonderful. And the primary reason it's wonderful is because a good chunk of you haven't gone yet. Some of you I know well and have gone and are experiencing these things. Some of you are preparing to go. And I will say what I said the first hour at the end. This is as important as any clinical training you will ever get in terms of your ability to function successfully and be all that God shows you to be where you're going to go work. However that looks, wherever it is. Um, we, we, we say if you depart for mission work, and that could be in downtown, whatever, it could be across the world, and you do not have a workable theology of suffering, that works for you in terms of sadness, seeing just the chaos and loss in the world. It'll be hard. It'll be hard anyway. It'll be harder for sure. So this is wonderful preparation. Uh, let me start just by saying I'm Barney Davis. I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, and for approximately 35 years, I've been doing memory care, uh, mostly parent uh, memory care. Um, meaning I try to go to the field where possible. Thank God for Zoom that we can do it virtually when we can't get to the field. Um, and I've seen a good bit of stuff over that period of time. Uh, the good news for those of you that thought I was going to be presenting is that I'm not. <laughs> I'm only serving as moderator. A couple of mechanical issues here. We tried to upload the slides, and there was, not surprisingly, a hassle with doing that through the system. I'm told, as of now, there is a Dropbox link on the description to this talk on the website, which would take you to everything you're going to see here in a PDF form, which you're welcome to use. Some of you will probably wind up taking pictures with your phone anyway. I would ask you to be careful with that because the presenters are physicians who work in an extremely sensitive area of the world. We're not going to use their names. Some of you know them, but we're not going to use their, their their real names. And we just don't want anybody to accidentally, with benign intent, take a picture of a slide and get a face. So check your stuff. If you do take pictures, please check it to make sure you don't have faces on it. And if you have anything, it would be best not to post anyway. Okay. At the same time, anything you can get from this, all that you get from this, take it, use it, promote it, keep it going. Um, Again, a little brief intro. I've been doing this for a long time. It is, it's my, uh, I mean, I'm old enough to where they were working to get CAT scans available in the U.S. when I was in medical school. So in my own field, I've gone from not being able to visualize. I said in the first hour, if anybody in the room is old enough to remember what a pneumoencephalogram is, come talk to me. Because that was a test you never wanted. Okay, whatever you had wrong enough to get one was worse than whatever you had wrong with you. And, but we went from not being able to visualize the central nervous system all the way over to now between CAT scans and MRIs and PET scans and dynamic PETs and all the other electrophysiological mapping techniques that we can now see the circuitry that God has put into play. It's fearfully and wonderfully made, scratches the surface just a bit. Where how the part of our brain that we literally relate to God with, if he allows us to relate to him and we each other, we can see that. And you can see how it's adapting and how it's changing, how trauma or sadness or whatever begins to function in these areas. And that understanding is just, just brings me to awe of God's power. At the same time, for all the complexities, whether we call it burnout or moral injury or PTSD or bad fit with agency or cross-cultural stress or sandwich generation with stuff back home with parents and kids, any of the presentations, the names that are legitimate names that we use to say, this person is suffering from this, this person must look like this, whether it's a clinical diagnosis or a situational description, if you sit down and start peeling back layers, I find myself just sitting in front of a sister or a brother who just begins to weep with sadness. And I'm, particularly in the last three to five years, maybe more so than before, but many years of seeing this, I 
I just think that so many of us are carrying a sense of sadness underneath how it winds up expressing and affecting and those other things that are implied. And so this has been an important topic for me to pay attention to. Now, we all know enough about how to handle grief. We've been to lectures and they say, okay, what you need is to be able to express it and engage your family and engage your community of faith and your church and you. What happens if you're working in a situation where you don't have that? Where you, it would be illegal and dangerous for you to have a visible, open community of faith. But you may be the only believers in the entire area. And yet you're seeing, particularly if you're medical, you're seeing grief situations happen faster than you can process them. What do you do with that? So I was attending a a pre-launch conference at a sending agency, medical mission sending agency. It was last year. And in the midst of this conversation, one of these attending doctors who were back from the field said, well, we, we're putting this together. He pops up his rough draft with a PowerPoint and I just said, man, people need to see this. And so that's what this is about. So that's why we're here. So I'm going to get out of the way and I'm going to introduce to you Dr. Elizabeth and Dr. Karen. Thanks, Barney. So first I want to start us off in prayer as we delve into this heavy topic. Yeah, Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for the snow. I thank you for the beauty of changing seasons. Um, And I thank you that you never change, Lord Jesus, and that we have your word um, that tells us that your presence is with us always. And so even this morning, we invite you here in this room to be with us as we um, delve into this topic of what to do with grief and ways that we can look to you and, and handle the things that come our way, that we can walk with you in faith and confidence. Lord, and we just thank you um, for all of these people here and the stories that they bring. And we just pray now that our lips would be used by you, that this tool would be used by you to bring more honor and glory and praise to you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. So I want to start, or keep going, we started to keep going with scripture. And so as we think about a grief protocol, where is that basis? Like, where is that coming from? And I think this scripture from Paul's letter to the Corinthians is is an example to us. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is what the Bible says, but how is it that we are pressed, but not crushed? How are we perplexed? but not in despair? How are we struck down, but not destroyed? And our proposal this morning is that there is a a way, a protocol, steps that we can go through when we face being afflicted and face being struck down so that we aren't destroyed. How is it that we are renewed day by day, that our outer self is is wasting away, but how do we renew our inner self? And so that, that is what we're proposing for you today. So I'm not going to read all of these words, but I'll let you read them um, on your own if you can see the slides. Um, Kara, I've kind of set this up already. How is it that we mentally, emotionally, and spiritually respond when these are the words that characterize too many of our days? Um, That's the place that I found myself in uh, a few years ago. I was working along with my teammate, Dr. Elizabeth, and a 
challenging setting. We were, were both family physicians and did um, all manner of care, but a lot of our work was obstetrics. That's where a lot of the emergencies were a lot of the challenges. So I'm just going to share a couple little stories. These all happened within a few days or weeks of each other and um, set me up to be in a, in a, in a hard place. Um, one day I was doing a repeat C-section on a woman who was a G9 P6. Um, she had three early miscarriages. She delivered one live child who had cerebral palsy. She had three um, intrapartum deaths and one uh, vacuum delivery for a known IUFD and intrauterine fetal demise. Um, so this was her ninth pregnancy. She had one child with severe um, handicaps so far. Um, a few days later, a woman came in in labor. Her heart tones were fine on the baby initially. I got a call while I was preparing a lecture up in the office that she had a sudden onset of severe abdominal pain and a gush of blood. We ran over to prepare the, the OR for an emergency C-section for placental abruption. And by the time we got to the OR to begin operating, we lost heart tones. Um, and then we faced the difficult decision whether to do a primary C-section to prevent further blood loss and um, protect the mom um, or try to deliver the, the deceased infant vaginally. Um, shortly thereafter, and this is a story I'll come back to as we go throughout the presentation, there's a, a G1, a young woman, first pregnancy, came in at 34 weeks with severe preeclampsia. We were able to get her blood pressure stabilized and the baby looked okay on, the, um, on our intermittent monitoring. We didn't have continuous monitoring. And we decided to try to induce her to prevent that primary C-section that does have a lot of potential future morbidity in our setting where women often have five-day children. Um, the induction was going slowly. The second day, she hadn't really gone into active labor yet. She had only dilated her cervix a little bit. She said, I'm tired. Just do a C-section. And I said, I don't, I don't think that's the right thing for you. Let's just keep doing, see if this works in the next few hours. And if the baby still looks okay, we'll wait. And if we haven't made progress, we'll do that C-section for you tomorrow morning. Um, I got a call. I was on call that day. And I got a call after I'd left the hospital for the afternoon that she'd gone into active labor. So I was like, great. All it took was just a little bit more patience. Um, we're going to be able to deliver vaginally this baby um, and prevent her C-section. Um, I was sitting down to dinner a few hours later when I got the call I didn't want which was that heart tones were down in the 60s. She was almost complete. I had a horrible knot in my stomach knowing that whatever caused heart tones to drop um, could lead to a bad outcome. I got my shoes and my head wrapped up in a scarf as fast as I can, and got in my car, drove over there praying frantically to spare the life of this child. When I got there, the baby had just delivered. Um, no breathing. No attempt at um, any respirations. Did have a little bit of a heart rate. We did CPR. We aggressive, uh, tried to resuscitate as aggressively as we could. I can still feel that little chest between my fingers and the memory. Um, squeezing blood flow. We got a little bit more of a heart rate back, but there was never any attempt at breath. And after our 30 or more minutes, we decided to call off resuscitation. This wasn't a setting where we had ventilators for BB. There wasn't really a good way to support an infant who wouldn't breathe. Um, so out of that, and I'll double back to that story, but um, shortly thereafter, we realized, my husband and I, that both of us needed a break to process um, the barrage of events that were coming at us so quickly. Um, we took a month in the U.S. and um, went through a formal debriefing program for a week, and out of talking to a counselor there came this idea of a brief protocol. And so that's where the, the idea was birthed, that we needed a process that we planned on ahead of time to walk through these things as they came at us. We didn't always have time to take a three-week mental health break and seek formal counseling after each one of these events. We did something that we could do at home um, on our own uh, as we go so this is our attempt at an organized process to respond to tragedy um, with honesty, um, allowing for grieving, renewal, some ability to go back and keep loving and living day by day in that setting. So we're, we're going to go through these seven steps um, of a grief protocol. We're going to break it down step by step. 
And this can be adjusted, you know, for different situations and personalities and, and the specific loss or grief that you are suffering. But what we really needed was a starting structure that's been so helpful for us that, you know, people say process your grief, but what's that mean? Like, what, what do I do with that? What's that mean? And so this was really birthed out of very logistical mindset of step-by-step, step, what can we do with this? And so just as... Um, my colleague here shared a story. I want to share a story that will also frame some of the examples I give for going through the grief protocol myself. When I was in my second year um, serving overseas in a really hard place, one of the um, residents that I was training um, was pregnant, was in labor, um, all of a sudden started having contractions just on top of each other. No space in between, even without any medications. And we noticed that the baby's heart rate was down. And even though we were in the hospital, that I was there, her colleagues or other other doctors were there. We had anesthesia there, everything. It still took us a bit to get back to the operating room. And by the time we delivered her baby, the baby had did not, was not able to be resuscitated. And so I'm in the operating room, standing across from one of my residents, that's one of her colleagues, trying to hold myself together as I continue to finish the surgery. Um, And that was a very, it deeply affected me. And so I'm going to share as we go through some of the examples of how I handled that grief through this protocol. So the first thing that we're going to, the first place that we're going to start, what we're going to do is we're going to start with Jesus. We don't start with the pain or the trauma or the tragedy or the loss or the grief. We start with Jesus. And this can sometimes be hard because when we're feeling the weight of the pain, um, sometimes it's hard to turn to the Lord. Carol mentioned that last night in her talk to you, that sometimes that the anger and the emotions that you're having are hard to make it to turn to the Lord. And sometimes we have to just do this in obedience. And I encourage you to start with a memory of when Jesus was near to you. And so this is the story from Luke when, when Jesus has um, come back and he's walking with the disciples on the Emmaus Road and their hearts are burning within them because Jesus was there with them. And so if nothing else, start with a memory of a time in your life when you knew the presence of Jesus. And sometimes that's helped with scripture. Open the Bible, remind yourself of the promises of God's word, listen to music, worship, anything, the things that you use that turn your heart to the Lord. And ask the Lord to be present with you in this process, for him to show you what you need to see. And you need to start in a posture of submission, of realizing that he is in control and that I'm not. Because we can't proceed with this process if we're white-knuckling and holding on to a sense of control and sufficiency. It's coming before him and admitting um, his sovereignty. We start with Jesus. The next step is to acknowledge um, what, what happened. Um, this is where we have to get really honest. Sometimes when we're grieving in shock, horrified, it, I'd rather blur the details. I'd rather um, stuff part of it, skip over parts, but please be really honest about what happened. And you ask hard questions like, what could I have done differently? What are the ways that others contributed to this event? What are the losses associated with grief? This is a a wheel of emotions, and I don't think you'll be able to read all of them well, but one step in acknowledgement is even naming your own feelings. So um, sometimes I try to kid myself and say, well, I'm just like a little disappointed. And when really I'm angry, you know, um, sometimes our feelings are bigger than what we're ready to name, but naming your feelings is going to be part of this process. And any point at which you're glossing over things or dishonest with yourself, you're going to get hung up in the process. So acknowledging is a bit, a lot about honesty and finding all those The next is acknowledging your limits. And this is just a humorous picture of my son um, when he was small trying to pick up a rock that's bigger than he is. But um, I also struggle to acknowledge my limits, I think. Um, Remember, you aren't able to know everything at a time. You aren't able to be in two places at once. You aren't um, able to foresee everything. Um, And I play the what-if game. What if I just had this one other vantage point, or what if I had just thought of this, but acknowledge that we do have limits, 
and and that's um, part of our created order, and um, that's going to be essential to going on to the next steps. So I'm going to double back to the story I already shared and just kind of walk through these. So what happened? We had a, a preterm baby that was born unable to be successfully resuscitated, and we lost that, that little infant's life that we wanted so badly. What could I have done differently? Well, I've asked myself over and over, what if I had just said yes to the C-section that morning? Um, what if I had stayed in the hospital all afternoon to watch her labor progress instead of going home for dinner and waiting for the call from the resident? Um, what are ways that other others contributed to the event? Well, we had a lack of prenatal care. She didn't come in for the first time for any care until she was 34 weeks of pre severe preeclampsia. There was a lot going on in the background that I couldn't have prevented because we didn't have access to her until that moment. Um, and what are the losses associated? Well, in this case, it was the loss of a life. <laughs> That's not a small thing. Sometimes the loss won't be um, literal death, but name the loss. What did, what did you lose? Maybe it was the loss of an opportunity. Maybe it was the loss of a relationship. Um, and name the feelings. I already named some of those um, when I showed you the previous slide and acknowledge your limitations. So the next step then is lament. And this is what I consider kind of the, the crux of this, although every single step is really important. Um, lament is not complaining or whining. It's not being a pessimist. It's not being grumpy. It is grieving with God about what's broken in the world. That's how I think of it. I appreciate the way Esther Fleece um, wrote this statement. Pain makes us cry out. Something is wrong with the world. Exclamation point. To which God replies, yes. Yes, there is something wrong. He agrees with us um, in our grief. And um, lament is its also wrestling. Um, I'll finish up that previous story by saying um, when we decided to call off the resuscitation and acknowledge that infant wasn't going to breathe, I stuffed sobs that were welling up within me while I drove home with the armed guard in my car, and I blew past the watchman at my gate who smiled a friendly greeting to me, and I blew past my husband and my son as I opened the door, and I ran up to my roof, where it was me and God under the dark starry night, and it all came out, and I sobbed, and I was angry. I said, God, I begged you as I drove to the hospital to save this life. What happened? Why wouldn't you do it this one time? And I was, I was grieved. I was, I was questioning myself. I'm not competent to do this. Maybe if another person was working this day, something would have been done differently. Um, and it was, it was, it was a real wrestling night for me on that roof. And the grief and the process wasn't over at the end of that. But I had to wrestle. I had to be that honest. Um, Jonathan Trotter, who's written a lot of really good things about work overseas, by the way, um, he says, can we still trust him with this? I know the Bible verses, but I still find myself wrestling with God in the crushing darkness of night. It's an ancient tradition, this grappling with God. Recognizing this is part of a process um, that has been carried out by those who love and wrestle with God through the ages. Um... There are so many places in the Bible that express lament, and I'm just going to share with you a couple of them. <coughs> Lamentations, the whole book, is, is rich. I'm just going to share a few verses. Lamentations 3.17-19 to 19 says, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, My endurance has perished. So has my help from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Um, and then Psalm 13 is an often quoted psalm, and for good reason. This is David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? These are heartfelt words. I mean, there's emotion behind them. And so... Um, the lament step, I think, is just so core and critical to um, being able to continue this process. 
And I think another important component of lament is that we are grieving with God, but we are also grieving with hope because we, we have the end of the story. And so many of the laments in the Bible follow this pattern. This is from Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So it's honestly pouring out our heart to God and not just naming grief for grief's sake, sharing our heart with the Lord, but also turning to the fact that he is sovereign and he is with us and he brings us joy in that. And I love how um, this author that I, I read this book called Suffer Strong, the authors in there take this Habakkuk verse and offer an exercise for us of how we can personalize this. And this might be an example of, of a lament for you. So if I think about that experience with my resident and who lost her baby, I would have said, though I cannot imagine going back to that hospital, and I'm angry, tired, and frustrated, and though I wish I could have been in a more reliable place, and I cannot even believe the chaos here, though I am extremely sad and cannot maintain my composure, yet I will trust in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And many of us find this lament, this process a bit difficult, and sometimes we need, like, tangible ways to do this, and I like to be creative and do things, and so sometimes, this is a collage I made in that season where I went through magazines and cut out words of things that I was feeling and pasted it on there. Um, Yeah, maybe art is your thing, or maybe you can lament and grieve when you're exercising, if you're running or hiking. Um, Maybe it's journaling, but there is often a physical and tangible way that we need to express our lament. And this is an important step. You need to spend time here. You need to really grieve and agree with God about what has happened. But don't get stuck here. But take a time to look long and hard at this point. And so these are, just to summarize, these are the ways and the things that are important to us about lament. So, um, and the next step is forgiveness, and um, someone asked me in the question session of the last um, time we presented this, what's the hardest step for you? And I, the one that popped to mind was forgiveness. This, um, this is such an important piece of it. I'm going to share another really quick story that I think encapsulates the um, struggle I had with the different players to forgive. So, my very first day on call, when I moved to the setting where I was working, I walked into the maternity ward, and the resident looked at me and said, um, I think we have a cord prolapse. And if some of you know obstetrics, like, that's an emergency. That's not like a casual comment. So I ran over and checked the woman and elevated the baby's head off the cord. I said, you know, kicked into emergency mode, and I said to the resident, get the OR ready. We have to deliver by C-section as fast as we can. And there was an intern standing around who we didn't know while he wasn't officially part of our program, but I needed another set of assistance. I said, come over here. You need to elevate the head so I can go get ready to operate. Um, and I ran and got my stuff, and I came back. And not only was the head not being elevated, the woman was standing up walking to the OR. And yes, that... Baby was delivered, compromised, and passed away that night. So I, I, I mean, this was hard. I wrestled with, number one, forgiving myself. Why did I ever walk away from that patient? Why didn't I just elevate the head myself all the way to the OR and operate with my street clothes on? Like, why did I step away even for a few minutes? Um... I had to forgive the intern for not following instructions. Maybe it was the language barrier. I thought he understood me, but he misunderstood. Maybe he was not understanding the urgency of the situation. Um, He didn't have the clinical expertise to problem solve how we're going to handle this. Um, When I said, why is she walking to the OR, they said, well, we couldn't find a gurney. I had to forgive living and working in a system that was that short on resources that a woman in labor didn't have a gurney to ride into the OR. Um, so that was one that I haunted me for a long time and I wrestled 
until I could forgive each person and each component of that situation that resulted in the loss of a life. And then finding meaning. And we can't start there, but we have to get there eventually. I don't believe in casually throwing out everything happens for a reason at the beginning of this process. Um, But we have to find some meaning in what's happened in order for us to go forward. Um, While we were working in this context with all these challenges, I've related my personal stories, but my husband has a giant share of his own. He's also a physician, and at one point he said... Um, I'm having a catastrophic collapse of meaning. (laughs) Can't keep doing this without finding some source of meaning in what we're doing. And that was one of the moments that prompted us to go seek seek formal help. Um, So in finding meaning, one of the ways is, what do we take away from this? And there are practical lessons to be learned sometimes. Sometimes there's very clear takeaways that we can do better. Um, what things can we change? Like, after that, I was a lot more aware of whether there was a gurney nearby when a woman needed to be transported. That just wasn't even on my radar on my first day on call there. And how is this a way to share in Christ's suffering? Um... This is another hard biblical concept. Um, Christ suffers and invites us to share in his suffering, and it is a way that we draw near to Christ. How does this transform me, myself, my walk with Jesus, my relationships? Um, there, There are absolutely ways in which the suffering that I've walked through has transformed my ability to relate to others who are suffering, to speak truth into situations. It has changed the way I walk with Jesus. And these are some of the ways that we can start to find meaning. The next step, and I think it's something that may be um, ignored or glossed over, but we need to seek healing for the grief and the things that we've gone through. And I think one way to do that is that to ask Jesus to show you how he was with you during that period of loss or that grief event or traumatic event. Because we know that he never leaves us or forsakes us. He never does. And so we want to come and ask him. And I think about that that day when my resident lost her baby, and as I was processing this experience, I asked the Lord to show me where he was. And what I saw was after the surgery was over, me and my colleagues, the other female residents that were good friends with her, we all went into the women's changing room to change out of our scrubs. And this is a very stoic culture that doesn't really show their emotions. But we were all standing there weeping together for the loss of our friend. And I saw Jesus standing there with me, weeping as well. And that was such a redemptive image of the fact that he never leaves us or forsakes us. And it was an important step towards healing. And I think another thing that we don't often um, recognize well enough is the effect that grief and trauma has on our body. The body keeps the score. And that's a book that I, I do recommend. And we know that grief has physical manifestations, right? We feel that we have a poor appetite, we feel nauseated, or we eat too much. Um, We can't sleep at night, we have bad dreams, our flashbacks, we have on the verge of tears all the time, um, sweating palms, the feeling of dread. Like, we know that there are physical manifestations of our grief and of trauma. And if we don't seek healing for that, then we can be stuck there. And so I'm going to share with you a prayer. I'm going to pray over us even right now. An example of something that we can do that invites Jesus into that, the Holy Spirit, and allows us to seek healing from that. I would pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would remove the trauma, stress, grief from my body. Cleanse every cell, every tissue, every organ, every system in my body from the effects of this trauma. Bring release to my bones, muscles, ligaments, tendons, joints. Quiet my hormones, my nervous system, and bring them into alignment with your design. I ask, Lord Jesus, for you to reset the fight-or-flight system within my body. Bring healing to my mind, conscious and unconscious, awake and asleep. 
I give my memories of this trauma to you and ask you to filter them and store them in a healthy way. Let me rest in you so that I may decrease my vigilance and fear. Jesus, bring healing to my emotions, my will, my spirit. I ask, Father, Son, Spirit, that you would fill every cell of my body with your joy, peace, and love. I ask that you would bring my body to a place of rest. I ask in the name of our healer and redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. And I think an important part of this process of seeking healing is finding a symbolic way to hand this over to the Lord, of writing things on a piece of paper and burning it, or having like stones of remembrance and setting up something that can be a tangible, physical reminder of the healing that the Lord has promised. When we come to Him and ask for healing, He brings it. And the other important thing is to have the Lord to help you separate the meaning because we've just said that there is meaning in our suffering and our loss but to help for God to help us to be able to separate the meaning and lessons from the memories and the emotions of the loss that those can be separated so that we can remember a hard time and not be thrown back into that spiral and cycle of the emotions and the memories that go over it and then we come back, looking to the unseen, there is more to this than meets the eye. There are practical everyday things we can take away, but there are, will always be things that are beyond our comprehension. Um, so we're doubling back to these verses that um, had been shared earlier. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And there are eternal things coming out of these sufferings that we may not um, grasp in the moment. There will be mystery and wondering. Um, There will be things that um, we'll find out in eternity, what God's purposes were. Um, This quote is from... Uh, a book on trauma and resilience, but I find it one that I've had to sit with for a long time. Well, what if God has allowed pain as a grace to take us where we would otherwise never go? Um, I've found that true in my own life, and it's a hard reality to um, soak in, but certainly we would never choose some of the pain that we've experienced, and yet in that mystery of his wisdom it's a grace that has um, taken us places we wouldn't choose to go but we needed to be and also gratitude is so key in this Um, Kate McCord worked in a very hard setting for a long time and she's written several books that I would commend to you she says gratitude or thankfulness became the means for keeping my heart and mind sane in a very difficult place Finding what you can to be grateful for in the midst of grief and suffering. Another component of that, looking to the unseen, is is developing trust. It takes trust, it takes faith to trust in God's steadfast love when circumstances are hard. This statement of trust anticipates a praise that has not yet arrived. You know, we live in the not yet, already in the not yet, and we live... Um, still in this fallen world where sin and death and destruction are still a part of, of what we are experiencing. The enemy steals and kills and destroys, but the enemy doesn't have the last word. We know that the Lord will make all things right one day, and that may not be now. We might not see it on this side of eternity. And so in the midst of these hard things and the grief and the suffering, we have to develop our faith and our trust in God's word that says that's true and in our own hearts as we can look and say, this, is, this isn't done. This isn't the end of the story. This isn't finished. Like, he will return and one day all this will be made right. And the other amazing thing in God's algebra and how he works things is that he allows us to go through these things so that we can be comforted by God and then we can comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. 
And I've gone through I've gone through a lot of hard things in this experience with my resident. There, are, I mean, Carrie, we would have so many stories to share of hard things that we've gone through. Um, I went through burnout. I came back from working overseas the first two years that I served and was completely depleted. But I can see that the Lord has redeemed that time because He taught me so much, so many boundaries and lessons. But He's also given me empathy. Um, to be able to comfort other people when they're going through hard things. And I think even in this protocol that we've developed, that God has used that for us to be able to teach and equip and help other people to know what to do with all of this. And um, we are able to share the comfort that God's given us. And I think a very beautiful example of this is the fact that that resident who lost her baby, she's not a believer. But she knew that that myself and my other colleagues, we were a safe place to grieve. And she would come to us, and she would come and share and cry, because, because she saw in us safety and comfort, that we could comfort her with the comfort that we've been given. And even though, even now she's not a believer, that experience of grief changed her life too. She's gone on to have other children, um, but she has deep empathy for women who have experienced loss in childbirth that her colleagues don't have because of what she had experienced. And I think even God is working in her life through that experience, even though she doesn't yet know Jesus. And this is a way for us to be a witness, to bring comfort to other people because of the things that we've experienced. And I think that this is, this is how we move forward. You know, we find, we seek healing and we find meaning, but this is the way that God is redeeming the suffering and the grief that we have in our lives, even now, even before we are in eternity with them. And so we have to come through and recognize that grief leads us to a place of hope in Christ alone. My friends that don't know Jesus, they don't have the same hope. They don't have the way to process the grief that we have because we have hope in Jesus. And there are gifts of grace that we would otherwise not have received. And in our grief, we develop gratitude. Our trust in God is strengthened, and we find comfort so that we can comfort others. And so here we are, back to our protocol, steps one through seven. Um, and we start with Jesus, and we end with Jesus, and Jesus is in it all. And there are so many ways that you could use this. Um, you could use this, like, at the end of the day. You come home, and you've had a pretty terrible day, and you need to go through step-by-step step and process this. A couple um, months ago, my colleague, I'm working here in the U.S. right now, um, she had a minor... Um, complication with a with an outpatient procedure. She was feeling so like defeated and so mad at herself and she just was like having a hard time getting through the rest of her patients. And I was like, hey, we've been working on this grief protocol. Do you want to go through it? So we shut the door to the office and we sat down and we went through this. We started with Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you were here with us and had her think of a time when Jesus was near to her. And we acknowledged the mistake that had been made that led to this complication. And we recognized that she was sad about that. She felt bad for what had happened to this woman. And we know that, um, that even in all things that God is at work, she had to forgive herself for the complication that happened. She was able to find meaning. Next time, I need to make sure I'm going to do it this way. We prayed for God to bring healing to her heart even then, to let her heart rate come back down, for her to set that aside and be able to move forward in her day. And we came before the Lord and we said, you know, our strength is made perfect in weakness. And you teach us things that we can rely on you all day. It took five minutes. She was able to take a deep breath and open the door and get back to her patients. And so there are so many ways that this can be used. Maybe this is something that you do kind of on a weekly basis. You know, on your day of Sabbath, you look back over your week and think about what are some of the things that have been traumatic or brought grief into my life and I need to go through and and enter into this process. Maybe it's something you do every few months. You get out on a break and you have time to kind of sit down and process. Um, It can take a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, or much, much longer. I find that for me sometimes I kind of go through it, but then I have to circle back and spend a little bit more time in lament or forgiveness. Um, That it it can be a cycle of kind of coming back and forth. 
And you know, sometimes this isn't enough. You know, that you may need counseling. You may need um, a, a debriefing process. We've both gone through debriefing um, pro, uh, sessions or, or retreats and times that we've really had to process that. You know, maybe it's just something that you need, Barney. You need somebody to come alongside and really help help lead you into counseling. This isn't a end-all, be-all, but it is a structure and a place to get started. And the important part of this is that you can, you can stuff this down for a while, but grief is never buried finally. It always resurfaces. If you don't address the grief in your life, it will come back. And you can, you can manage. Like, you can stuff things down and, like, put your big girl pants on and go to the hospital the next day. But what you do is that you stuff all of those emotions away. And what that does is it steals your joy and it steals your witness. So this is, you you don't want to live that way. You want to live the abundant life that that Christ has called us to. And when we don't address, like, the grief and the conflict and the trauma and the things that have happened to us, we won't be the whole healed people that Jesus wants us to be. These are some resources that we have found helpful. Um, There's lots of things out there on grief, but these are just some of the things that we found that have been helpful. Um, and now we have a couple minutes if there are questions or comments or things that... Housekeeping. Again, those that came in late, the slide set in its entirety is available. We should have a Dropbox link on the description to this this, uh, session on the website. If you can't get that, and there's been some problems already trying to get any of this done, Barney.davis at barnabas.org. That's my email address. You still may email me and I'll send you the PDF copy. So Barney.davis at barnabas.org. Before some questions and before they close us in prayer, um, get a sense for any segue from Carol's talk last night, uh, some connections and some things. Uh, I I do want to emphasize one area. Curtis McGowan Faleo, uh, member care group is here. Dr. Roger Brown, founder, and continues to be active with Tumaini Clinic in Nairobi. I'm with Barnabas International. There are folks out there who can help. It does not mean that grief requires counseling. But there will be some of you in the room that the situation that you're dealing with in grief is borrowing in power from some other hurt. Um, I remember well of was working with one doctor and doing the very best they could do with this immediate crisis could not get to that one in time to save that person. And that would be painful. That's difficult. But in that person's life, when that person was six years old, the doctor was six years old, they had probably inappropriately left to babysit younger sims, which one got into immediate crisis and the six-year-old couldn't get to the help quickly enough. And it carried that sense of inappropriate and profound grief and hurt and guilt all this time. And so here, this event was borrowing the power from this. And I promise you, the God that I serve, I think, takes us to the mission field to get us to look at stuff. That's the only place he can get us to look at it. Because once he gets us to look at it, we begin to see his redemptive component. We begin to connect with him. That's when he starts using that, as they've already said, in your witness and your ability to come. So I hope you take this. We've got a time for questions. We'll need to clear the room a little after 10.30 because we get everybody ready for the plenary and they do have a closing prayer. So again, thank you. If you have taken pictures of slides with your phone, please check to make sure none of the images of people are on them. Don't post. And if you got an image of particularly these two ladies, just admit that one. Download the slides. Okay? I'll let you all find it. Questions or comments? Yes. I just want to say as somebody who's been there, been through this a lot, for those of you who haven't gone or are very new on the field, pay attention to this. Be prepared. Take it with you. This is this is good and very valuable. I've not had it put together this beautifully before, but it's the kind of process that you need, and you're going to need repeatedly. 
Thanks, Thank Jackie. you. She was just saying that this is something to take with you, and that's that's like truly our hope. Like we didn't find it either, and so yeah, um, putting it together in such a way that it is re- reproducible, and we want to share this with you, and we want you to share it with your teammates. We want you to to use this and to invite others to use this as well. Do you? Any? Go ahead. that you're going to face um, unfortunate outcomes and bad outcomes. Like, is that right? Is that where you're getting at? Like, yeah. Um, I, I think that's that's so important. And, like, Barney alluded to that, too, that, like, you know, oftentimes, like, working overseas, like, reveals what's underneath, you know, like the pain and the hurt that's there. And so, yeah, finding patterns of um, resiliency and health are super important. Um, and being able to, I think for us too, another thing we found was like having community and other people that you can process and share all this with is super important. Yeah, another person after the first session made the comment about doing this um, with a team or in a group, and I think maybe as a way of preparation, find your find your people that would be willing to work this with you, even if they haven't experienced the same grief you have, people that could um, be on your team. I've worked with a lot of different, well, I do member care for missionaries, but probably three-fourths of what I do is with medical workers. We are all trained to excellence, push to do the best with the best for the best outcome. Hours and days and weeks and years of learning that. You're exactly right. We do not address, you don't want to leave this, you don't want to admit this, but you're going to be, how do you prepare for the worst outcome? And so I think just this conversation is the answer. Being aware uh, and not feeling that sense of guilt. The old, anybody remembers the old uh, M&M conferences, morbidity and mortality conferences. It used to be, a, let's see, grown men coming out of those things weeping because it was say, where did you go wrong and what's wrong with you? This day and age, they're more geared toward how could we do better next time or less punitive. But you don't want to have your own internal M&M conference. Okay? You want to have that discussion with people that you care and know well and can trust and you want to have it with Jesus. Okay? Learn from it. Good question. This was a thank you. So excellent. I really hope you guys will consider publishing it. Thanks. Yeah. Before, well... We'll close out here. And I don't know how many of you practice corporate prayer in your worship services, but I thought we could pray this brief prayer together to close out. Christ of the cross and of the empty tomb, strengthen us to bear the burdens of the day, to seek you amid the hurts and questions, and to trust you for mercy enough for this day.